Welcome to the pre-show. Welcome to the pre-show. Brought to you by KTEL Records. You remember KTEL? KTEL. Yeah. Did you know they're still around and they're still making money? And they're sponsoring us? Oh, they are? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) What are they doing? Are they like like Rhino Records kind of thing, doing back catalog stuff? Or are they actually doing... Kind of, kind of. So... So for the for the kids who listen to the show that have no clue what KTEL Records is, and I didn't know this, it's, it was actually a Canadian company. That I didn't know. Um, so founded by Philip Kives, I believe is how you pronounce his last name, just started putting together these compilation albums and, um, they there was no such thing as compilation albums. Now, what he wasn't doing, he wasn't putting together the greatest hits of the year or the decade. It was mm-hmm. this sounds like the music, for example, from the 70s. This sounds like the, the rock hits from the 80s. Let me put together a compilation album of artists that sound like the the hits. Anyways. Millions upon millions of records were sold through KTEL, and now they are making money through licensing. So they've got a catalog of all of these artists that are original, right? Because that was the selling point. 25 original songs by 25 art, you know, Beatles were never on it and so on and so forth. But um, yeah, they've got uh, a lot of uh, a lot of songs. Over two hundred thousand songs are distributed every year on digital platforms. Uh, licensing songs on commercials, films, TV programs. So uh, KTEL wow. is uh, yeah. 20 power hits from 1973. So if we look 2073. 1973. What do you mean? 1973. <laughs> These here are, here are some, some of the small unknown bands that sound like other bands that are on here. Elton John, Nazareth, The Who. Oh, these are on his Jeff album? Beck, Susie Quattro, Edgar Winter. Free, Hot Chocolate, Barry White, Roger Daltrey, Carpenters, and another by Elton John. Again, the kids would so ask. They were not. The kids would ask, who the heck are these people? I think the kids would know Elton John, though. <laughs> what <are you> doing? <laughs> yeah. No, what I, what I, meant, what I meant to say is it, and st- Barry White. it started out as, you know, who are these? It started as artists that nobody knew. But um, when did it, when is it from? Winnipeg, Manitoba. I hate Winnipeg. Yep. Um, so do you know which, which, oh. which uh, band leader, which lead singer, which guitarist, which drummer um, praised KTEL for exposing him to music early in his life? Dave Grohl. 
David Grohl. 2013, David Grohl from the Foo Fighters. And uh, he gave me a lot of clues there. I mean, if you I just know, said I a gave producer, all the- if you just said a musician, <laughs> if you said a drummer, if, you know, yeah. but yeah, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Gave a keynote on. speech, Dave Grohl, Foo Fighters, keynote speech at South by Southwest in 2013, praising Cato for exposing him to music early in his life. Yeah, man. Grohl wow. told the crowd, this is what he said. The first album he ever owned was Frankenstein. Uh, sorry, was the, uh, yeah, yeah. So it was a 1975 KTEL Records blockbuster compilation. And the song was Frankenstein by the Edgar Winter Group. He said that was the first album he ever owned. And that Didn't record changed his life. Yeah. So we want to thank Philip Kives. A Canadian. Do you know, do you know, do you know just randomly? Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Yeah. yeah. Randomly, the one click that I went to for 1973 is that album. Really? The bl- it has the blockbuster compilation. Wow. It has Edgar Winter Frankenstein. How weird is that? Anyway, sorry, you were thanking. That's okay. No, we, we have to thank, I think, rock fans around the world. There would be no grunge today, arguably, without KTEL Records. Because who would have played drums on Nirvana? Would Nirvana? Yeah, Nirvana would have existed. What about a different drummer? But uh, you'd have no Foo Fighters. No Foo Fighters without uh, KTEL Records. Yeah. A young man out of Winnipeg, Philip Kives, passed away April 27th, 2016. Well, there you go. And that's the pre-show. And a li- that is the pre-show. Yeah, a little, little history lesson. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. For the children. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, the following podcast is brought to you by Radical Road Brewery, the best craft beer in the heart of Leslieville. Find them at 1177 Queen Street East. That's Radical Road Brewery. My name is David Less. I'm a Memphis-based author of a book called Memphis Mayhem, a story of the music that shook up the world. I'm also a record producer. I have a record that came out in May on Alex Chilton with the High Rhythm Section, a legacy record that the uh, live record had never been released before. And a few other records that I've done, I've, I've produced 20 records um, and several concerts, promotions, and I've been in the business quite a long time. So welcome to the music. Welcome, 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 welcome. It's so great to have you join us today. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. David, what, what, came, what came first for you? Uh, you know, you're, you're an author, uh, producer, historian. What was your first foray into, into music? Well, <clears throat> um, I mean, I started listening to music when I was five. I have an older brother and, you know, Shep and the Limelighters and, you know, all of that stuff. I listened to Ricky Nelson, all that stuff when I was really, really young. Um, but professionally, I guess where I made a living, uh, so assuming I still make a living or did, <laughs> um, in music was just working in a record store when I was in college. Uh, you know, huh. like a lot of people, well, there used to be record stores. 
Yes. And, and it was a good, yep. great way to get a lot of free records and learn a lot about music and make friends and, you know, stay out late and do stuff and have fun. So I, I was fortunate. I worked at a store called Poplar Tunes, which is oh. a very famous store here. They owned a, the same people owned high records. Mm-hmm. Like Green's label and Ann Peebles and, you know, Otis Clay. And, uh-huh. So, you know, uh-huh. there was a lot of activity around Poplar Tunes and that was probably where I first got my real taste of uh, not only being around vinyl and around records, but the way the industry worked, the promo men and the salespeople and, um, you know, just, just the way it all sort of fell together. Hmm. So you were, so you at the time were living through like, what I, where I wanted to go with this is in terms of sort of, we get into the book is, you know, it's, it's, it's race, it's social issues, it's music, it's all tied up into one. This was that part of your upbringing that, that sort of got you to the book and the writing of the book? Well, I, I grew up in Memphis and, and Memphis is a place where um, black and white musicians particularly uh, coexisted, made music together. You know, it's, it's part of our history, part of our DNA. Uh, not so much for the citizency, citizenry, but mm. for the um, mm. and and not not in any different way in Memphis than everywhere. It's not you know, but you know yeah. we and when I was in high school, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated here, and mm-hmm. a lot changed. You know, a lot changed. Stax Records had had been our hometown uh, record company, and and frankly, I had no idea that there was anything unusual going on in the music here up until I moved away, came back from New York in the mid seventies. Prior to that, I just assumed that everybody had uh, WDIA with Rufus Thomas on the radio. And there was a, you know, you could, you could go to the grocery store and see Isaac Hayes, you know, that there was, you know, if you saw a bear cat driving around, it was probably Elvis. And, uh, and I just assumed that happened everywhere. Really, until seventies, uh, that that there was something really special going on in that music. I mean, I played music. I was a drummer and played, but you know. yeah. You, David, you talked about um, when uh, the the killing of Martin Luther King when he died. You said you said a lot changed or everything changed in Memphis. Um, what, like what can can you sort of explain to us what changed and, and maybe around music and culture what what changed there so dramatically? Well, I think it was a change uh, nationally, you know, when Dr. King was killed because it was clear. Um, and I, I can't remember the exact thing I said in the book, but but just the righteousness of civil rights, you know, it brought mm. it to the forefront, and then it was undeniable, and you couldn't ignore it. They, you know. Kill this guy, <clears throat> kill the leader of you know of that movement. So he was undeniable. Um, but uh, you know, personally, um, just an example. I was like I said, I was in high school, and I was at a band practice with a new band, um, and we were a mixed band, you know, black and white, and, and they were new people that we had just met. Uh, I think it was three singers and a horn section or something, and we were rehearsing at my friend's house. And his mother came downstairs and said, listen, now, you guys all need to go home. There's a curfew, and Dr. King was just killed. Mm. Uh, so uh, I, I actually took the, the guys home 
I was, I don't know how I was able, I was driving, I guess, and, and went home. Uh, and we never saw him again. And it was never a question of let's do it again. It just was <laughs> never saw him again. But it's a, uh, things just changed. I mean, huh. uh, they changed at stacks, you know, people who had worked together for years and really trusted each other. Suddenly it, I mean, it's a big stain, you know, on, on, uh, on what happened here. Now wow. we recovered from it, you know, but, uh, but at the time it was a very influential thing in terms of, uh, not only music, but commerce and politics and, you know, Almost almost a loss of innocence, it sounds like. Well, I mean, African-Americans will not say that. First off, they will probably tell you that it didn't change. Uh, and in many ways, it did. You know, I mean, a lot of that same uh, sort of oppression uh, continued then and likely continues today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they would probably have a different opinion. But um, I, I think that uh, in terms of, of, uh, of my generation, it probably changed. I mean, in the same way, uh, I know this is not the same thing, but when I, I was in a recording session when I heard John Lennon was killed, and that was a turning point for me. You know, that was the end of innocence. That was the end mm. of giving a chance. No, we're not giving a piece of chance. We're going to kill you. So, um, you know, those those moments in time uh, like that are markers, and um, that was one of them. Was there a... Was there a difference in in the type of music that was coming out of Memphis pre and post assassination that you noticed? No, no, no. I mean, the, the music, um, and it was still black and white people playing music together. It wasn't like music became segregated. Okay, because it didn't. Uh, so no, it, 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 I, I didn't notice any change musically. Just sociologically. Okay, okay. I wonder if you can you can tell us about um, Memphis as a place, the people there, the history of it, um, where it sits in America that made it such a a, a place that that gave birth to Elvis Presley, Isaac Hayes, you know, arguably or not, rock and roll. Um, the blues and all of this, like what, what was it about that Petri dish of a place? Well, I think part of the whole thing is that the theme of the, that Memphis mayhem um, is racial collision. And um, I think that, you know, that happened in many places, Boston, I mean, it happened everywhere, but in Memphis, it was different because in the 1870s, you go all the way back to then, uh, there were three devastating yellow fever epidemics. Mm-hmm. And I know this sounds like a very dry history, but I'm trying <laughs> to answer your question. Um, turn in your books now, you know, uh, but it, <laughs> what what happened was it was a metropolitan. It was bigger than Atlanta. It was the Mid-South big city um, at that time, the 1870s. And when the yellow fever came through, everybody who could afford to leave got out. Okay. And they were mostly wealthier white people and African-Americans. And, and there were African-American population here, obviously, um, couldn't and stayed. And so they basically became the controlling uh, 
influence. You know, they were they were the politicians. They were the ones who who had the hospitals. They were the doctors. I mean, they were African American was the leadership of the city. So when in, the yellow fever was over, and we we gave up our charter when it was over and came back, it created a racial power imbalance that didn't exist anywhere else. And I know it sounds silly to talk about Elvis Presley in relation to the 1890s, but but I think that, that you know, that's not that long. If you're talking about generations and you're talking about power struggles and politics and money, you know, the first black uh, millionaire uh, was from Memphis and came around during that time, hmm. uh, Robert Church Sr. So it really set the tone. Uh, and as far as what happened with you know, Elvis and Sam Phillips and, you know, there was a whole, um, you use the word Petri dish, which is good because there was an infrastructure set up here around music that uh, allowed things to happen. We had Popper Tunes, which I mentioned before, as a retail outlet. We had disc jockeys uh, like um, Dewey Phillips and, and Rufus Thomas and WDA. We had, we had very innovative uh, radio here. We had distribution here. We were in the, you know, we were in the center of the country, so everything went out on a train or it went out on a uh, you know uh, truck or however it went out. It didn't have as far to go as from New York to LA. It was it was closer. We were geographically well positioned, and we had a pressing plant here, so you could and we had great studios. We had great musicians. Um, and obviously great producers, Chips Moment, Sam Phillips, uh, you know, really serious. So we had an infrastructure here that, that supported making the music, getting it out, and, and making it work. Jerry Wexler told me once, if, if you can sell 10,000 copies of a record um, locally, then you're going to get picked up by Atlantic or by one of the major labels. Mm. And we were able to do that, which, which actually happened with Stack. Atlantic came in and picked up a distribution deal. So, you know, everything, a lot of things had to fall into place that did. And, uh, and you know, that was a, a fairly unique situation, I think. I'm sure it may have happened other places, but um, not to the extent that it did here. And also there was a don't give a damn attitude. Nobody was making any money, you know, where, <laughs> where Elvis, you know, uh, again, to keep going back to Elvis, and, and, and I, don't, I don't begin or end my whole conversation about Memphis music with Elvis. But um, Sam Phillips had made records, had made blues records, and been successful as a record producer. He knew blues music. If Elvis were in Nashville, those producers didn't know anything about blues. First off, they never made money on it. They didn't know the financial implications. And secondly, they wouldn't know good blues and bad blues. And that's not <laughs> but they didn't. they had no exposure to it. Sam was well-steeped in it. He had made hit records in the blues field. So when Elvis you know, brought blues into the studio as a white guy playing blues, um, he got it and he nurtured it and he made it work. So, um, you know, whoever you think invented rock and roll, it was at Sam's studio and he was behind the board. I mean, there's, there's a lot of different theories. Well, whoever it was, you know, you got to give it to Sam. Interesting. Fascinating. One, one of the things before I, I want to dive into stack records and the importance of that, but before we go there and I actually, I actually made a note that I wanted to ask you, which sort of dovetails off of what you just talked about there is, um, what, what, what do you think we can, or what would you like us to learn? Like with all the issues that we have today into the racial and societal issues that we have today, what, what can we learn from 
the Memphis experience and the Memphis Petri dish? Well, I think that, that um, uh, it's a lyric to a song. Let's think of it. The difference between this is not very far. Uh, um, you know, it, yeah. it happened. It can happen. The difference is not that far. It's not like all the divisions and all the hatred and all the nonsense that goes on now is really manufactured. I think, you know, left alone, we would come together. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's great. Great answer. Thank you. So, so again, you know, now, now let's, let's, I want to dive into stack records and the importance, not just in Memphis, not just in the U S but internationally. Can you talk about that for us? Yeah. Well, I mean, stacks was, um, you know, a small local uh, record company. And they started turning out records. And when, and almost from their first release, they were picked up by Atlantic Records for distribution. So they had the ability to get product out everywhere. Uh, they didn't know it, really. You know, they kind of knew. Huh. But until they went overseas, they had no idea of the influence they had, um, mm-hmm. you know, on the Rolling Stone, on the Beatles, yeah. On British music, you know, that was sort of the, the British made and stuff. A lot of that music was what wasn't Motown or Chess was stacked uh, in Memphis. And um, so they, they um, the impact there was, was really far reaching. Um, you know, I, I don't know if I answered your question or not. But. Yeah, yeah. No, for sure. I mean, that's, you're, you're right. The impact on, on, Brit rock and Brit pop, if you will, back then. I mean, it was massive, the influence that they had on the Beatles and the Stones and that, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the Stones, you know, covered Rufus Thomas walking the dog in their first record. Uh, mm. You know, the Beatles, you know, the Beatles probably even less so than the Stones, uh, but they were certainly influenced by all of that. And, they, you know, there's a whole story in the book about John Lennon at the Troubadour with Ann Peebles. Um, you know, saying that her record was the best record ever made and, you know, just really acting like a fanboy. You know, you're John Lennon acting like <laughs> a fanboy for Ann people. So, uh, you know, they, they really did. Um, it was disproportionate. They didn't know it. They didn't realize how much, you know, influence they actually had. Yeah. Um, so, so, David, up, up here in, in, in Canada, hockey is almost like a religion. And uh, I think this past season, for the first time ever, there was an all-female um, play-by-play announcer uh, group. I, I, I think there was three or four women um, that were calling the hockey game up here. And um, it reminded me of this story of, uh, of the first all-female radio station um, out of Memphis, WHER. Um, and this is, this is not recent. This is back in the fifties. Uh, yeah. So like, what was, was that just a one-off gimmick was, what was the, and, and what sort of happened from that? Well, I mean, uh, again, Sam Phillips started that, uh, W-H-E-R, the same guy who, you know, made all these great records and sun records. And, you know, I don't know how household a name he is to your audience, but, um, Peter Goralnik wrote a terrific book about him, um, about Sam. But he he started that radio station with his friend 
Timmons Wilson, who started Holiday Inns, which was the first wow. self-service. Um, it was the first motel. In other words, you drive up to the door and you get out and you get in your room instead of being in a hotel. And mm-hmm. he started the whole thing. The idea was they would all be the same in whatever city. And it was, it was you know, it was a, a chain of motels and, and it started here with Holiday Inn. So the two of them started this station. And I think Sam, um, Sam loved radio. I mean, he made more money in radio than he did in the music business. Wow. Uh, he owned radio stations until he died. And his son, Jerry, still with his granddaughter, granddaughter. So they, you know, they have been in the radio business and Sam began in radio. That's how he learned how to work a board. And uh, his wife, Becky, was a radio announcer um, as well before they met at a radio station. So, um, you know, radio was kind of in his blood. And I think he felt that, you know, when I, I interviewed Becky and she said he just felt women deserved a voice, hmm. you know that they deserve to do that. And he, so everybody on staff was a woman. The general manager was a woman. The sales staff were women, uh, program director. I mean, everybody there at WHER was a woman. And, uh, uh, the now from abroad, you know, which a broad. Um, yeah. <laughs> never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but at any rate, um, uh, it was really innovative, and, and it lasted a couple of years. And, uh, you know, from a stand of a standpoint of a format, uh, it probably wasn't going to go beyond Memphis. But I don't think you look at gimmick, and I don't certainly know they did. Yeah. I think it was, just, you know, empowering women to do something. I think, I think it had a huge influence well beyond that. Like, I look at, you know, we have a radio station up here in Toronto called Indy 88. And they, you know, the morning show is led by a woman and with two guys as her, as part of her team. Uh, midday and afternoon are women as well. So I think, you know, I love, I love that out of Indy 88. Full disclosure, Josie, the host of the morning show is a good friend. So, <laughs> but, right. but, but yeah, no, I think, I think, you know, I think of, all the amazing women that are in radio today, you know, not that they had the opportunity because of that, but, but, you know, that certainly set a path. This was 1957. Yeah. And how many women were in radio in 1957? So it was, it was very innovative. Yeah. 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 David, I I wanted to do a little turn here, but kind of related to radio. Um, and, and talk about music streaming and, and your thoughts on whether it's streaming or downloads, Spotify, Apple Music. Um, definitely the way people are making money uh, on music it has changed. And, and, you know, you'll probably be one of the first to say it's always been changing. It's always been, you know, one generation it's this way, the other generation is somewhere else. But um, what are your thoughts on Music today, the way people consume music and its impact on, on musicians and artists. I think it's a terrible thing. Um, you know, I, I owned a record company for a number of years. And, uh, and, and this is not sour grapes because, you know. But um, I think when the record companies, the major labels began giving their music away, uh, they made it impossible for anybody to make a living. 
uh, unless you're Taylor Swift, unless you're, you know, unless you can stream in the billions. Yeah. But, you know, you would get a, a you know, a royalty of a, of a cajillionth of a cent, you know, for a stream. It, it, it amounted to nothing. So it made it virtually impossible um, for musicians to make money off recorded music. In a sense, it, it has created great music because since nobody is making money on it, they don't care. You know, they can make, uh, they can do what they want. And so there's a little more integrity in mm. a lot of independent music, I think. Um, you know, I think that's helped that. But, you know, it's the definition of a professional is you make your living doing that. Mm-hmm. And a guy who works at Home Depot and plays music on the weekend is not a professional musician. In the past, he could have been. Hmm. You know, at least he had a, he could aspire to be. Yeah. yeah. At this point, I don't think, you know, I don't know how you do that. Unless you're going to be on the road. And if you're going to be on the road, you don't have a family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I think it's really um, uh, a giant step backwards. Uh, we didn't we didn't join Spotify with my label. We just, okay. we just we're not doing it. You know, we're not going to get a cajillionth of a cent for our artist, you know, and and give our music away. If you want our music, buy it. So, um, you know, of course, we no longer have the label, but it is still in operation and still working. So, you know, yeah, we we often we often put out we often put out the word or or the message that. If you're going to listen to something on Spotify, go buy it first, preferably on something like Bandcamp where it's directly from the artist and then yeah. Spotify it, you know, because that way you're supporting on both ends. But again, it is what it is. Um, one one of the things that I wanted to touch on, because I'm a, a big fan of the punk scene, was the, uh, the uh, chapter, The Dawn of Punk. Um, and I thought it was really interesting. I'd like you to talk a bit about, you, you know, the reference to Tennessee Waltz, which is funny because we have Colin Burton, whose film The Last Pogo was about the Toronto punk scene back in late 70s. Um, you know, both being on a play on the the last waltz. But but I, I thought the 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 episode was really interesting just going into that segment because it's not one that we think of with Memphis. Can you explore on that a bit? Well, I mean, in in 76, Stax Records was closed. And in 77, High Records was sold to a California outfit. Um, And around the same time, Chips Moman moved American Studios to Atlanta. So those were three major income sources for musicians. Mm -hmm. And what it left was really, really talented, proficient people who really knew how to make records and who really knew how to play their instruments and had been on, on serious hit records, lots of them, um, without any income, without a job. Um, so it it became, you know, everybody did what they could to, to get by, but it became, um, you know, uh, a community of people who were not making money off their music. So they were going to make music that they wanted. To play. Uh, they want, they, they, they did what they wanted and, and it was a freedom. And, 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 you know, if there's one defining thing about Memphis music all the way back, it's the independent spirit, you know, it's independence. We've never been a company town. We've never had Sony tell us how to make a record. We know how to make a record. Um, so there, there were studios and it was like activity in the studios 
um, Ardent being a great studio. And then um, the theater on Beale Street called um, The Orpheum, you know, downtown was virtually, you know, empty. You know, again, 70, in the mid-70s, it's not very long after the assassination of Dr. King, you know. So a, a lot of downtown business and a lot of everything moved out to the suburbs. And so there's this whole place where uh, the Orpheum Theater is this beautiful old built in 1925 theater that was uh, that was changed from, it was a movie house and it was bought to become sort of a performance theater. But nobody was going to put any money in it at the time. And if you read it in the book, it, it explains why that is. So there was a place to perform and a ton of people to do it. And Alex Chilton was sort of a, um, if your readers know who Alex, listeners, I'm sorry, know who Alex Chilton, uh, Alex uh, was a leader in, in, in a lot of musical forms. I mean, he was a, he, he almost created Blue Eyed Soul with the box tops. And then he did the, um, you know, Big Star, the cult band. But by that time, he had tired of all that stuff and he was still a brilliant musician. So he started this basic punk. He and Jim Dickinson, who was a record producer and some other people around town and everybody, you know, got involved in, in that. And the scene grew out of that in Lost, downtown Lost and at the Orpheum, which was empty, but you could use it whenever you wanted to because it was empty. Um, mm-hmm. So there were venues and there were a lot of very talented musicians and and it was music that was fun and probably reflected the rage of, of mm. really talented people who, who no longer could make a living. I mean, I think that was probably, uh, you know, a factor in there somewhere. But there was a great scene here, a great punk scene. I mean, this is one of, what, eight cities that the Sex Pistols played in in the U.S.? I mean, they didn't, yeah. their tour was pretty limited, uh, but Memphis was a spot they played. That's interesting. You know, you talked about these... Um, Going into these uh, empty lofts and playing there just because they were empty, um, which which nicely dovetails um, David into a, a segment we call Lost Venues, where we we explore um, magical places really where music once lived, where bands played, um, where shows that people talk about to this day uh, once happened, um, but no longer exist. I was wondering if if there is a a, a particular place in Memphis uh, that you hold dear to your heart because of uh, maybe a band that you saw there or just the vibe of the place. Well, the probably the venue that I would say hold most significance is called Club Paradise, and Club Paradise was opened by a man named Sunbeam Mitchell, um, African American, and it was a black club basically. Um, but just because it wasn't like let you there, early African-American. And it, it's a huge cavernous place. The building still stands, but, you know, that's anything here. But, but it was built as a bowling alley. I mean, oh. it, it could hold 3,000 people. And when it started, like Helen Wolf opened the club, Count Basie. I mean, everybody was there. But the show that, that did it for me was seeing BB King at Club Paradise. Nice. Sunday Mitchell was his first man, 
and Sunbeam sitting at the back with his arms folded in a folding chair watching BB. And I mean, BB was absolute royalty at that club. They were like carrying him out on their shoulders. Um, and he played, and I'd seen BB play everywhere from Memphis to Stockholm, Sweden. I mean, I've seen him play everywhere. I've wow. never seen anything like that. I mean, never seen. And then, and then the, the shows that I would probably remember, there's a place that holds import for other Memphians that I probably should mention called the Mid-South Coliseum, which is closed. And there's a movement afoot to try to bring that back. Uh, but it's it's, a, it's city-owned, and, it's, and there are a lot of problems with it. But uh, seeing Al Green there and seeing Earthwind Fire at that place was incredible. I mean, I've never seen anything like that before. Fascinating. Yeah. David, tell us a little bit about, uh, you, you talked a bit off the top and you've mentioned him since, um, that you just produced a, a record um, that features Alex Chilton. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that, how that project came to be. Well, I have, um, I produced shows and festivals for years. I, I did the first early Beale Street Music Festivals and, uh, and I've just done hundreds, hundreds of shows. And early on, I would do a show and somebody would come up to me afterwards, one of the money people, and would say, that person said this. And I'd say, no, they didn't say that. And they'd say, yes, they said, you know, and, it's, and you know, it's terrible. We can't do this, that, and the other. Um, so I started recording it. I started having the sound mixer, uh, you know, just record it. So I could go back and say, no, they didn't. And just for my own use, you know. Uh, well, the show that with Alex uh, was a, a benefit for a great musician named Fred Ford, who lived here in Memphis and um, howled like a <laughs> let's see, howled like a hound dog at the end of Big Mama Thornton's record. I mean, he was on Big Mama Thornton's Hound Dog. He was he toured with Johnny Otis. He was you know, and he was a great jazz player who stayed here in Memphis. But he had cancer in the late nineties. And um, we were trying to raise money for his medical bills and uh, a funeral if we needed to, but just to get him back on his feet. So we, we did this benefit uh, called Fred Stock. And we had everyone, I had, the, the venue was, was donated, it was on Beale Street. And everybody donated their time and effort, and all the money went to him. So it was Fred, for, I mean, it was, it was um, Rufus and Carla Thomas. It was a band called Lucero. It was one of their first shows. They're now a pretty big act. And, you know, a, a, a very good Memphis show. But I was concerned about not selling out because it's Memphis. And so I called Alex in New Orleans and asked him if he would come play. And Alex, um, being Alex, said, oh, well, there are no musicians in Memphis. And I said, well, you know, uh, okay. So I just kind of threw out the high rhythm section, the guys who played on Al Green Records and all those and I said, what about the high rhythm section? And he agreed to that. So we brought it in and we recorded. We actually didn't do a board mix on that. We recorded that show for Fred. So it's, hmm. it's a better recording. And it was just here, you know, like everything. I, I can't tell you how much stuff I've got. I've got an Ann Peebles record live that's coming out next year. Um, same thing, you know, just, just a show I did. That great record from 1992. Um, but the Alex record, um, I had forgotten about and. Howard Grimes was the drummer on the show and he saw me out. We were at a, an event and he said, look, that was really, really good. You should go listen to it and you should release it. And I had never considered that, but I went back and listened. It was really, really good. 
So I made a deal with Omnivore Record, LA-based company, and uh, and it, it came out in May. Uh, awesome. Yeah, it's on vinyl and CD. It's called Alex Chilton with the high rhythm section, uh, Boogie Shoes, live on Beale Street. Fantastic. That's that's awesome. I have to check that out. Um, one of the things we like to ask our guests before we wrap things up is, what are you listening to lately? What's in your earbuds? What should people be checking out? Nothing in my earbuds because I don't listen to earbuds. <laughs> <laughs> Other than Alex Chilton. Other no, than Alex Chilton. I, what should I, people I, be checking I out? To a stereo on a vinyl with a record. Good for you. Speaker. That's how I listen to music. Good for you. Um, you know, I, I, I listen to um, a variety of things. I, I tend to listen to jazz. I started out um, as, a, as a downbeat record reviewer. I reviewed for downbeat. And I did, did jazz reviews for Rolling Stone. So I tend to listen to jazz more. Uh, Tete Montuli is a guy that um, a blind uh, Catalonian pianist who I think very highly of. Uh, he's you know, a fabulous musician. Um, but I listen to everything from Slidestone. I listen to Swamp Talk uh, the other day. Um, James Brown, um, you know, Kenny Drew, who, of course, John Coltrane, Mingus, Monk, you know. I mean, I, I, I listen to a pretty wide variety of things. Uh, I've been listening, actually, to uh, the Meters quite a bit recently, the New Orleans group. Um, so, you know, Fantastic. Yeah, and uh, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to modify that question before I ask it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, not everybody's a snob. I mean, you know, I'm a dinosaur. You know? I mean, I'm a dinosaur. I'm not gonna look weird, but hey, when I when I I'm telling you, when I sat my my two twenty somethings, they were early twenties at the time, down, and I brought out my old dual and had it serviced and set it up and I threw on level forty two of physical presence, the double live album. And they were just like they just they looked at like they never ever experienced music like that before. So I'm well that's, hats off to you if you don't listen through your earbuds. No, I mean that's part of the whole Spotify Apple quick mm-hmm. you asked earlier. Music is not important anymore. It doesn't have any value. It's free. And it's in your ear all the time. And so, you know, in the past, you know, music ended a war, you know, changed the world, brought people together. It it doesn't do that. It's just noise in your in your ear right now. Mm-hmm. And that's really the tragedy of uh of the you know, where we've gone. I'd love to get back to where we're you know, to where music matters. I think it will. Here, here. For sure. David Les, thank you so much yes. for joining us uh, today. Uh, we appreciate the time. We appreciate the, the knowledge that you've uh, shared with us today. Uh, the book is called Memphis Mayhem, uh, a story of the music that shook up the world, published by ECW uh, Press. Um, go buy it. Pick it up at your uh, favorite uh, bookstore or online as well. David, thank you so much. Thank you.